You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. We should do something for me to begin with. If you are selfish or alive, either one, raise your hand. Now, the reason I put those two things together is they're almost like synonyms to a certain degree because if you're alive, because of our nature, regrettably, too often we're selfish. And you're selfish in your life. Those two things like are, are, go hand in hand. We don't even have to, uh, to learn how to become selfish. It's like it's part of our fallen nature. It's even probably part of what caused us as the human race to fall to begin with out of, out of pride. Have you ever watched kids when they're playing? And uh, so you, the reason I'm saying you don't even have to learn how to become selfish is, is that you've got children. They'll be playing young children. No one's had to teach them to be selfish or anything else. And they're playing with stuff, and before long, you'll start hearing the word mine. Have you ever heard that before, young children? And no one had to teach them to do that. It's just like it's part of who they are. And, and we are like that ourselves a lot of times, and we'll carry it over into relationships and even, even carrying it over into, into marriage. Rate yourself for a moment. I ask you to raise your hand a moment ago. Rate yourself in your own mind. Don't call it out. I'm not trying to get you to be repentant right now in this part of the service necessarily, but rate yourself from 1 to 10, 1 being you're Jesus and you're completely humble, and 10 being you're pretty selfish. Where would you rate yourself? Now let me add that in. You got a figure in your mind. How would your spouse rate you? Because probably they might rate, rate us to be more selfish than what we rate ourselves. Don't you guess that they might would do that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I look around too much sometimes when I'm preaching. I'm, I, I looked over and saw a guy looking at his wife and shrugging his shoulders like this. You know, like <laughs> okay, am I or not? Am I or not? You know. And see, the, the thing about it with children, since that's kind of part of our nature anyway, and it's easy to be selfish, if we're not careful, as parents, if we make our children think the world revolves around them, like they're the center of the universe, if we're not careful, we'll cause them to grow up thinking they are the center of the universe. And I know we're talking about marriage, and you're probably wondering, how does all this translate into this series on marriage? And here's how. Selfish kids grow up and they get married. Do you understand that? Selfish people marry. And if they allow selfishness to be driving the relationship of marriage, then you have all kinds of issues and problems crop up in the marriage because of selfishness. So the title of the message today is, is Selfish Lovers and Servant Lovers. And we want to kind of you know, see how we can uh, transform away from just being selfish lovers to being more more servant-based in our marriage relationship and how, we, and how we love our spouse. 
To help us do that, we kind of need to lay some groundwork. So the first thing we're going to talk about is, is simply this. We, we want to notice that there's a connection between selfishness and pride. And you see, that helps us with the root issue. The reason we are selfish is because we've got this pride that's kind of driving the, the issue. There, there's a clear connection between selfishness and pride in, in, in our lives. And to help us kind of distinguish that, we, uh, we want to see, uh, you know, from God's viewpoint. But to start with, I want you to just think about how, how foundationally pride is an issue in selfishness. It's a foundational issue. See, when, when we allow pride to drive our lives, it's like we're thinking, I'm more important than you are. And when we bring that to the marriage relationship, it's like, all right, I'm more important than you are. You know, what I'm doing right now is more important than whatever you're doing right now. Uh, you need to quit doing what you're doing and come over and agree with me that I'm more important than you are. My stuff's more important than your stuff. And that kind of just causes all kinds of problems in the relationship because a foundational issue of selfishness is that pride. It's when we think it's all about us. You know, it's, it's not about Jesus. It's not about the others. It's all about who I am and what I want. So a foundational issue in selfishness is this thing called pride. And when we allow selfish pride to, to be a driving force in our lives, especially in our marriage, what happens is this. It causes us to approach marriage in a way that we are using our spouse instead of loving our spouse. Because if, if you're loving your spouse, then, then you can't really let it all be about selfishness and pride because, you see, if you're really loving your spouse, it's going to be about them and not just about you. But we can, when we've really got a lot of selfish pride going on in our lives, it's all about what we want, not what they want. So we tend to use them to see what we can get out of the marriage, what we can get out of the relationship, instead of really loving them and looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, what can I bring to the relationship for them? What can I do, do for them? Now, I know because of our culture and, and the way we're kind of trained these days, someone's probably thinking right now, well, you know, I, I understand what you're saying about pride, but what about my self-esteem? Because we've been taught in our culture to have a lot of self-esteem, haven't we? All right, now, now let me tell you to begin with, you know, just briefly, where your self-esteem ought to be based. Your self-esteem, especially if you're a believer, ought to be based in this. God cared so much for you. His son came into this world and died for you on the cross. That's why you're valuable. I don't know of anything that ought to make us feel like we've got more self-esteem than this. Jesus died for me. You understand that? But our culture wants to sell us a bill of goods to where we take the word self-esteem and use that as an excuse for having just old-fashioned pride. And we'll come up with all these excuses, but, but my parents told me I was special, or a teacher told me I was special, I'm this little flower, and I need to have this self-esteem, and I just need to grow in my life, and things like that. And we'll come up with all kinds of excuses that make it sound like it's a virtue instead of a vice for us to have pride in our lives. Well, see, the Bible says we're all sinners. The Bible says none of us are good. No, not one. You understand that? I'm not saying don't have any pride in your life at all. Be proud that Jesus died for you. You know, let, let your self-esteem be tied up in the cross of Jesus, not in other stuff. Because if you get a lot of pride going in other stuff in your life, it's going to cause a lot of relational problems. 
Now, to reinforce that, what I want us to do for a minute before we kind of go on in the main part of the message is just see what God has to say about it. Because, you see, the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what our culture says about self-esteem or pride. It doesn't matter what you and I think about pride or selfishness. What matters really is what God says about this thing called pride. So I'm just going to kind of hit some verses pretty quick and bring several verses up on the screen to give us a little bit of a foundation for what God's viewpoint is of pride and selfishness. Look at these verses. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So, so God is telling us that he, that he hates the way of evil, that he hates perverted speech. It says the fear of the Lord. So if we're going to fear him and relate to him in the right way, we ought to be hating evil ourselves. But notice what else he said there. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. In a list of some things that God says he hates, he says that he hates pride and arrogance. Look at the next verse. Another list kind of that God gives us. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. So it's kind of like God is saying, all right, there's six, but here there's really seven. I want you to notice one. I think that might be the way God is, is phrasing this. Six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, which, you know, you've got murder taking place. There are heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So it's kind of like this little nasty list that God has given us of things that he hates. Did you notice what God listed number one? Pride. That's, that's what haughty eyes represent, someone that, that's being filled with pride in their life. Look at the next verse. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. I, I submit to you being an abomination to the Lord is not a, a positive thing. And I'll talk more about that word in just a moment. Be assured that he will not go unpunished. So there God's talking about punishment coming to bear against someone that has an arrogant heart, someone that's allowing their life to be driven by, by pride. You see, one of the big issues about pride is you think you're okay and you don't even need Jesus. You don't even need God. That's one of the, the very negative things about pride. But it, we're looking at it in the context of how it hurts relationships, especially the marriage relationship. Look at the next one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride goes before destruction. If we had, I use an illustration like this, you know, every now and then when we kind of present it in scriptures. But honest, guys, if we if we form two lines going through two doors, and over those two doors this morning, one says the prideful enter here, and that leads to destruction, and the other one says the humble go in this door, and that leads to life. Which line are you going to hop in? But we're told up front that that pride goes before destruction. We're told in the Bible, Paul writes over in the New Testament, that it's when we think that we can stand, that's when we're going to fall because we've deluded ourselves into believing we're really strong and we're not. Look at the next one. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But where the humble is wisdom. Think about that for a minute. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. You want to know why that's true? 
Because you get prideful and you can't live up to what you're prideful about. (laughs) And then all of a sudden when the bubble of your pride bursts in front of you, there's disgrace attached to it. See, God's plan A is really this. God wants us to practice humility in our lives, but because of our nature, we wind up practicing pride, and that leads to humiliation when we practice pride in our lives because none of us can live up to what we think we're so prideful about. None of us have arrived in that way. Look at the next one. Let's jump over into the end of the New Testament. It says, clothe yourselves. Because some people say, oh, that's all Old Testament stuff and Proverbs. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now look at it in James. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Did you notice what it says there about about pride? God opposes the proud. I I don't know about you guys. I don't think I want God in opposition to me. Do you? I mean, isn't life tough enough and the situations and junk we go through bad enough in life today without us making it worse by being prideful and God saying, because of your pride, I'm going to stand in opposition to you? See, some of you are maybe having marriages that are really, really struggling, and you fail to recognize that pride might be the central issue. You might be having a very struggling relationship in your marriage right now because you're allowing pride and selfishness to drive the relationship. And as a result of that, it's like God's kind of standing in opposition to you. And he even tells us here that we need to be submissive to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Our goal is to be submissive to the Lord, not be prideful, not be selfish. We need to resist Satan, and he'll flee from us. One way to resist him is to resist pride. His big trick is pride anyway. That's what got him kicked out of heaven. He decided he wanted to be king. He wanted to be on the throne. He wanted to be God. And it cost him heaven, and then he's brought his battle to earth to where he's trying to destroy us and destroy you know, what God desires and destroy families and things like that. And his central tool is pride, the same thing that cost him being cast out of heaven. We need to recognize how detrimental it is in our lives, especially in our marriages, if we allow pride and selfishness to be driving our lives because it's going to hurt our marriages. Which brings us to this. That's just some background about pride. What I really want you to notice is the conflict that it causes, the conflict caused by selfishness and pride in marriage. It doesn't help. If your marriage, if you, if in your marriage you think it's all about you and it's not about your spouse, it's all about what you want and nothing about what your spouse wants, I am telling you, you're going to have conflict. Things aren't going to be cool at home. There's going to be a lot of issues if you allow selfishness and pride to be driving your life. Proud people become selfish lovers in and out of the bedroom, and and that will injure the relationship. You see, the problem with selfishness and pride in marriage is really at least twofold, two things I want you to think about as far as a problem when you have selfishness in marriage in the relationship. One is this. If you have two people in a marriage who are both selfish and they're both filled with pride, you want to know what kind of marriage you're going to have? You're going to have a brutal marriage. A brutal marriage. Because you're in competition all the time. If both people in the marriage relationship is making it about them and what they want and not about what their spouse wants, it's like you're constantly battling. There's a a constant, you know, friction taking place. There's a war taking place because each person is trying to get their own way all of the time. 
And by doing that, it would just be brutal in the marriage relationship. On the other side of it, if in the marriage relationship you've got one person that's selfish and the other person is trying to be a servant, trying to be humble, what you wind up with is an abusive marriage because the one that's being selfish all the time is really abusing the other person because they're in humility trying to serve the other spouse and they're constantly taking, 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 taking and never giving and it winds up being a very abusive type of relationship. So what's the solution to that then? I think the solution, God's solution for it would be this. The solution of selfishness and pride in marriage would be this. God desires for us to have this model of where in marriage we have two humble servants loving and serving each other. I, I know, as, you know you've heard it time and time again, you know, marriage is a two-way street. I'm, I'm telling you, that's true. Amen? And for it really to work out like it ought to, it's going to take two. And, and not just, you know, one being selfish and prideful and one being, you know, practicing humility. For it really to be like it should, both parties need to be practicing humility. They need to be serving each other. And, and you see, the deal with that is you never arrive, so you have to constantly be working at it. That there will never ever come a time in your life that you fully arrived to where you are not selfish and prideful anymore because the deal in that is this. The moment you think you've arrived and you don't have any trouble with selfish and pride anymore, you're being prideful and selfish about thinking that you've arrived. Does that make sense? Now, no one hits the dismount from selfishness and pride and say, I've arrived now, you know. Boom, I'm there. I'm, I'm never ever selfish. And as soon as you tell somebody else about it, guess what just happened? You were prideful. Because you're bragging about it and you're telling somebody else, man, I've really whipped this. So the reason I'm telling you that is in, in the marriage relationship, since we are two human beings and since we are imperfect, we will struggle with things like selfishness and pride from time to time. No one's going to fully arrive, but what we can do is this. What we can do is, is try and have the direction of our, our marriages should be one person by God's grace pursuing humility married to another person who's by God's grace is also trying to pursue humility. We can admit we're not there. We can admit we're not perfect. We can admit we are selfish. We can admit that we do have pride. But we can also say both of us, by the grace of God, as much as we can, we're going to try and work on serving the other person and practicing humility instead of pride with the other person. You see, that kind of marriage can be enduring and endearing, and it can be fun, you know, in the bedroom and outside the bedroom. Now, I warned you guys, I told you, you know, these three weeks we're dealing with some intimate topics because right now there's probably some people thinking, man, you're talking about pride and selfishness, and the title of the message had the word lover in it, and I thought you were going to be talking about intimacy in the bedroom and things like that. Well, we are. Right now we are going to talk about that some in this part of the message, but you need to understand something. What happens outside the bedroom impacts what happens inside the bedroom. Now, some of the guys are looking like, do what? <laughs> Ladies, it's okay to amen this because we don't get it sometimes. In the marriage relationship, if we will be servant lovers, Outside the bedroom and inside the bedroom, it will enhance the whole relationship, that's all I'm saying. 
If you are never, ever serving your spouse outside the bedroom and you wonder why things inside the bedroom aren't good, can I tell you why? It's because you're not being a servant outside the bedroom. If you're trying to be a servant outside the bedroom and sometimes it still seems like it's a struggle and it's not like it ought to be in the bedroom, just maybe you're doing this. Maybe you're practicing selfishness inside the bedroom and you're making what happens inside the bedroom all about you when what you ought to be doing is focused on being a servant lover to your spouse and it being about them. You see the difference? Even if you're married, listen to me. I'm not trying to be coy. I'm just trying to be honest with you guys. Even if you're married, in your intimate relationship, if all you do is make it about having sex, that is selfish. It needs to be about loving and meeting the need of your spouse, whether you're outside or inside the bedroom. Now, here's some verses. This is not just me talking, okay? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've used this before already in this series, but I want you to look at it again and apply it to what we're talking about today. The husband should give to his wife her congenial rights. This is the uh, English Standard Version, and you know some uh, translations say you know, perform, it would be the marital duty uh, you know, for the wife and the husband. I, I'm using this translation because I want you to clearly see what it's talking about because in context you'll see what it's talking about in just a moment. The husband should give to his wife her congenial rights. You know what that's talking about? We don't use the word congenial rights in Caldwell County every day. I understand that. Do you know what it's talking about? Talking about the intimate part of the relationship? And likewise, the wife to her husband, to a street. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, we've already been in this text in, in one other message in this series, but what you need to understand is this. This is God through the pen of Paul writing this. The very God who made us the God that wired us the way He wired us, the God that has given us the desires that we have, the God that fully understands all of that, He's given us some very, very practical information here. Notice the way He puts it. When you are married, He said that you don't have authority over your own body anymore. You, you need to view your body is there to, to serve your spouse. Husband, your body's there to serve the spouse. You know, wife, your body's there to serve your, your husband. He, he's, he's telling us that, that it don't belong to you anymore. It now belongs to your spouse, and you're to meet each other's needs, and you're to, to fulfill that congenial rights that he's talking about there. And he, and he goes on, and he's saying, don't deprive each other. Don't stay apart unless you've actually talked about it, and you've agreed about it. And, you know, it kind of sounds like there's some spiritual reasons attached to it. God is actually telling here, I think, for a, a couple who are married, a, a man and a woman who are married to each other, that they ought to practice intimacy freely and frequently by what's said here in this text. When you're married, you become one, and, and, and the guy ought to be about serving her, and she ought to be about serving you, and it ought to be a, a two-way street to where you have this attitude that, that you're saying to each other, I belong to you, and you belong to me, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to serve you. 
And I'm going to take care of your needs and you'll take care of my needs and apply it outside and inside the bedroom because it has to happen in both areas or it's not going to work as smoothly as it should. So some of the guys are still like, what are you talking about? All right, dude, I'll make it real plain. (laughs) You need to help do the dishes. Sometimes you need to help with the clothes. Sometimes you need to help with the cooking. Sometimes you need to help with the kids. Ladies, it's okay. Say amen. Listen, when, when that never happens, no, it's just human nature. When that never happens and, and you get to the point that you're stewing over it, don't you ladies stew over it sometimes? Huh? You're acting like you're Jesus. You do. You stew over it, don't you? I mean, you'll get upset and you stew over it. And then nighttime comes, and it's just like the guy's got you know, in mind something that you know, everything's supposed to be fine, but you're stewing over the fact that you're not getting any help. That affects what happens in the bedroom, right? Right? Good Lord. The early service, they were like, you know, you guys slept in too long today or something. And so I'm just giving you some practical information. That for it to be right inside the bedroom, you need to be a servant outside the bedroom and also caring for, for your spouse there. You know what we tend to do? Uh, well, let me give you some stats, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. Uh, like I said, sometimes there might be some spiritual reasons, some problem. It might be a relational problem, and you agree, and, you're, and you've prayed about it, and you said, well, we're going you know, to not focus on our intimate life because we need to get an answer from God. But then he says, come back together again quickly. But let me give you some stats to start with, and then we'll jump back into that. The younger the couple, and the guys, these aren't my stats. Don't blame me for it. The younger the couple, the more... Uh, they are intimate together. Uh, they say an average of two to three times a week. I'm just telling you what the, what the stats said. Uh, as a couple gets older, it becomes statistically less frequent, depending upon what survey you read. 15 to 20 percent of couples have a very limited sex life in their marriage. 15 to 20 percent. This means they're together uh, once a month or less in that 15 to 20 percent zone. For some of it, means zero a year at all. Zero a year. Now. You might be thinking, well, why are you giving me those stats? Because those stats are a problem. The very God that made us, I want to remind you again, the very God that made us and knows the desires he's given us says that your body belongs to your spouse and you're to meet your spouse's need. And he's talking about the intimate relationship. And he said you're not to defraud each other. You're not to stay apart unless you've agreed. You've talked about it. No mind games, no head games. It's not I'm mad at you. You know, type thing. You've talked about it. You've agreed. You're fasting and praying. But then it says come together again. When you read it in the Greek, it actually means come together again quickly. Why? So Satan will not tempt you for your lack of self-control. You don't know why it is a serious problem for couples who are married, a Christian man and a Christian woman who are married to each other, not to be practicing intimacy in the relationship because it opens up the door for them to be tempted to commit adultery. Or for them to be tempted to find their fulfillment from a computer screen. Or whatever the issue might is. God said that you're to meet each other's needs. God said you're to be servant lovers. It's not going into it selfishly, seeing what you can get out of it outside or inside the bedroom. It needs to be about meeting the need of your spouse. Loving your spouse. Serving them. Instead of it being all about you. 
Because when you make it all about you, that's when it becomes a, a serious problem and you're failing to, to serve your spouse, whether it's in or out of the bedroom. You know, churches, a lot of times in you know, Christianity and churches, we're pretty good sometimes for bringing discipline against people who have gone too far sexually. You realize that? You know what, based on this passage of Scripture, I don't know what we shouldn't maybe kind of discipline, at least advise couples that they ought to be together and be together often because of what the Bible said. Well, I can't believe he said that at church. It's in the Bible. Am I not supposed to say something that's in the Bible? I can't help it that somebody else will talk about it, but if it's in the Bible, I think we ought to talk about it. Amen? And the Bible says a couple is to meet each other's needs or to meet each other's needs. The Bible says you're not to stay apart unless you've talked about it and you agreed to it for a spiritual reason and give yourselves to you know, fasting and prayer and then come together again quickly so you won't be tempted. That's there for a reason. We all talk about it. So the advice is, not that I'm giving you, the advice is that God's giving you through the pen of Paul, a married couple needs to meet each other's needs inside and outside the bedroom. Believe that? That's what, the God, that's what God said what the Bible says. Now, there are extenuating circumstances. Man, if somebody's really sick, they're sick, right? You know, me and we all have enough sense if, if they're really sick to, you know, give some compassion there. Extenuating circumstances, just had a baby, <laughs> you know, things like that. Their spouse is deployed in the military. You know, there are some honest circumstances that we need to pay attention to. But I'm talking about honest circumstances, not excuses. And excuses like this, well, I understand what you're saying, preacher, but you see the kids sleep in the bed with us and the dogs sleep in the bed with us. Can I give you some advice? The kids need to have their own bedroom. Amen? The dogs can go somewhere else for a while. Instead of having excuses and making excuses, you need to meet each other's needs. And I don't want you to lose sight. Don't lose sight of the main point. I don't want you to think this is all about the intimate part of the relationship. The main point is this here. You need to be a servant to your spouse. Both of you, not just one-sided, you need to be a servant lover and not a selfish lover. You need to serve your spouse outside the bedroom, and it will encourage what you think ought to happen inside the bedroom. little obscure verse of Scripture in the Song of Solomon says this, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. I think there's probably some Hebrew poetry for saying this. Little things matter. The little foxes, if you let the little foxes just run free and you think they're not big foxes, they're just little foxes and they're down there eating at the vines and chewing at the vines before you know it, the vine withers up. And in the marriage relationship, if you're allowing little things, you see, sometimes we think we're off the hook because, man, I'm, I'm not committing adultery or, or I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that, so I, I'm pretty good in the marriage relationship. But if there are a lot of little things that we're allowing to not take place that should take place or little things that are happening that shouldn't take place, there's little foxes there that are eating at the vine of the relationship. And if we don't deal with those little things that matter, those little things will 
will become big things in the relationship. Like helping some around the house. Like remembering to tell your wife she's beautiful like you told her she was beautiful before you married her. Ladies, like your husband, still knowing after years of marriage, you still respect him and you still value him and you're still glad you're married to him. You see, it's the little things like that that matter. And if you don't deal with those little things, the big things are going to be big problems. I'm going to close just by talking about this because you may be wondering, well, all right, I'm supposed to be a servant and I'm not supposed to be selfish. You're talking to us about being a servant lover and not a selfish lover. What does that look like? I mean, how does that work out? So what I want us to look at right here in, in the closing last part of the message is, is this. I want to give you a model, which is Jesus himself. A model for you to look at that can help us become servant lovers because the Christ model, who Jesus is and the way Jesus functioned, the way Jesus operated, gives us the best model we could possibly have of what it means to be a servant. I mean, back in Isaiah, before Jesus even came in to the world, incarnate in the flesh. Isaiah was saying he's coming, and he portrayed him as a suffering servant, that he's on the way. And then when Jesus comes, here's what happens. Jesus leaves the portals of glory, and he comes into this world. He leaves a place to where they were saying, holy, 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 into a place where they're going to say, crucify him. He comes, in, he comes from a place to where he was completely rich as the ruler of all the universe, and comes and lives as a pauper in this world. He, he comes and leaves heaven to where everything is exactly perfect and being worshipped and adored into a world that abuses him and mistreats him and gossips about him. Jesus gives us a picture of what it is to be a servant. Jesus, holy, 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 perfect God, comes into this world accused of being a sinner, though he was not. And he's tried, and he's nailed to a cross for our sins. He comes into this world, and he dies for sinners. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. But he does it for us. Why? Because he's the greatest servant lover that there's ever been. That's why. So I want to give you a couple of instances from the life of Jesus about servanthood. I know it talks about servanthood in general. But can I remind you of something just because it doesn't say husband and wife doesn't mean that you don't apply it in the marriage. You realize that? If something applies to people in general and we bring it into the marriage relationship, if anything, it ought to define it and give us a laser-honed view of how we can relate to each other as a husband and wife. Look at the first text. I'll give you some background to it here just for a moment before I read it. Kind of something I think pretty foolish is taking place. The disciples are over here walking along with Jesus and they're arguing among themselves about who's going to be greatest. Now, is that kind of stupid? Now, I understand the disciples did not maybe have a full-blown picture of who Jesus was just yet. But I'm telling you, at the time they're walking along arguing about who's greatest among themselves, they've seen Jesus do some things like walk on water, multiply loaves and fishes, raise dead people, heal people, and things like that. And the disciples are over here arguing about who's the greatest when the one that's the greatest is right over here beside of them. Kind of a stupid debate. 
But that's what was taking place here. Jesus calls them over to himself, and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's talking to disciples. So if you're a follower of Christ, you today are a disciple. So here's what he tells us we ought to do. He tells us how we shouldn't do it. Now he tells us how we ought to be a servant. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. See, the the pathway to being great is not trying to claim greatness for yourself in our selfishness and pride. Posture yourself in such a way that people think you're great. Jesus said that you need to serve other people. That's the pathway to greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. I mean, Jesus gives us the perfect picture of what it is to be a servant. Can I remind you what Jesus did at one point in time? Remember when He got down on His hands and knees and He washed the feet of the disciples? You remember that? And Peter said, oh, no, you're not going to do that. And, and then you know, Jesus said, yes, you know, yes, I am if I don't, you know. But Jesus, God of all the universe, in the flesh, kneels, and he's washing dirt off the feet of his disciples. Can I remind you that the name of one of the disciples was Judas? And Jesus washed the feet of Judas took on the form of a servant and washed the feet of the one that would betray him. Can, can I tell you something? I, I'm just, you know, because some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but preacher, you don't understand what my spouse is like. You don't understand what my husband is like. You don't understand what my wife's like. It, it, it's just hard for me to serve them because you don't understand what their attitude is like. Has your spouse ever taken you and sold you for silver and turned you over to be tried and beaten and abused and nailed to a cross? That's what Jesus did. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's crazy on my behalf. But I'm just thinking of Jesus who's perfectly holy would kneel and wash the feet of Judas who would betray him. That maybe that gives us an example that you and I ought to be servant lovers for our spouses without any excuses. But, but, Pastor, you just don't understand. You know, serving my, serving my spouse is kind of inconvenient for me. You don't know my schedule, and you don't know all the circumstances, and you don't know how I've been hurt. It's just inconvenient for me. Will you notice what it said Jesus did? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you think it was convenient for Jesus to leave heaven, come to this earth, be nailed to a cross, and die for our sins? So where, where are we at? You know, if, you're a, if you're a Christian, where are you at trying to get off by saying, but you don't understand how inconvenient it would be for me to really be a servant lover for my spouse. I do understand this. It was very inconvenient for Jesus to leave all the glory of heaven, come into this world, face all the junk that we face, be abused and nailed to a cross, and yet he did it anyway, even though it was very inconvenient for him. So maybe we need to drop the excuses and be willing to be servant lovers. To our spouse because Jesus gives us a perfect example of what it means to be a servant lover.
So I think a lot of times it's how we enter into a marriage, what the mindset is. Did you enter into the marriage with a long list of stuff? I expect this. I want this. I want this out of the relationship. I want that out of the relationship. I want this out of the relationship. Or did you enter into the marriage relationship saying, I want to do this for my spouse. I want to do that for my spouse. I want to serve my spouse. Some of you are in a small group. You know, you didn't sign up for the small group this time. Some of you that are realize we'd be given homework assignments. That might be why some of you did not sign up for a small group because you thought, man, it sounds like having a Bible study and everything like that every week and stuff sounds like homework to me. You know, there is some homework with it, but can I tell you something? I'm going to give you some homework today. I dare you to go home and make a list of how you can better serve your spouse. No, I really dare you to do this. I dare you to go home and talk to your spouse and ask your spouse to give you a list of how you can better serve them. For both of you to do that. So you can have a clear understanding of the need that maybe your spouse has. So you can serve them in a way that you're a servant lover and not a selfish lover. You know what people tend to do a lot of times in dating and stuff like that? They try to date and they want to find somebody that they feels like is just like them. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've been guilty of that before. You know, maybe you, those of you that are already married, and, and, and if you're on the front side of this and you're dating right now and you're trying to find somebody just like you, I'm going to help you out. You're here on the front end of it. See, a lot of times we'll say, well, I, you know, I, I want to know that you like the stuff that I like. In other words, if you like to eat Chinese food, you want someone that likes Chinese food, you know? If you want to, you know, be involved in certain sports, you might want them to be involved in certain sports or whatever the case is. But you want them to be like you because by them being like you, you know, want to go on the same place to vacation. You like going to the beach, you want to be sure you pick somebody that likes going to the beach and stuff like that. So you're all about trying to find somebody that's just like you. So maybe whether you not realized it or not, this might be going on in the back of your mind. If I find somebody that's just like me, I can have my way all the time. We can go where I want to go, eat what I want to eat, because it's somebody that's just like me. See, a lot of times you're choosing selfishly based upon that. Here's the thing I wanted to help you out with. Those of you that are married, you already know this, okay? Those of you that aren't, can I help you out some? Quit trying to find somebody just like you, because within just a few weeks of being married, you're going to find out you didn't do it. Amen? Married couples, amen? See, part of it is there's nobody just like you to start with. You're a unique person. But you will find out that even though you thought, you know, after you get in the marriage a little bit, even you thought, you know, this about them a little bit farther in the marriage, you'll find out it wasn't so. Ladies, the dude probably didn't pick his nose much while he was dating you. He might start doing it after he's married. Guys, you always saw them with their makeup all made up and everything. You get married, you might think, who's this in bed beside me when you wake up in the morning? I'm just joking about that, but, the, but I'm not joking about the other. Don't try and pick a spouse just trying to find somebody that's just like you because it's not going to happen, and you'll be deluded on the other side of it. To be honest with you, if they're not like you, that is perfect. That's great because it gives you a chance to meet their need, and they have the chance to meet your need, and you can be a servant lover with each other. Instead of thinking selfishly, you have to just meet the need of the other person. Look at Philippians for a moment. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Once again, that's not talking to married couples. It's just talking to people in general, to believers in general. But if it applies to believers in general, it also applies to you and your marriage. But also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taken on the form of a servant. Jesus said, don't make it about you, make it about the other person. Jesus didn't try and hold on to who he was and all of his glory. He didn't say, no, I'm not leaving to go into that earth and turning loose of everything that's great here in heaven. I'm not going there where they'll beat me. I'm not going there to where they're going to abuse me. I'm not going there to a place to where instead of them carrying me about as a king on the shoulders, they're going to spit at me and nail me to a cross. I'm not going there. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came. Jesus did not hold on to his glory. He was willing to turn loose of it to come here so he could be the ultimate servant and die for our sins. And that gives us the pattern that we need to turn loose of our rights. You see, Jesus didn't stop being God. He still had deity. He was still deity. He was God in the flesh. He proved it by his miracles. But he willingly restrained his rights many times when he was in the flesh. And I'm just telling you, that gives you an example as a Christian husband and a Christian wife that sometimes what you need to learn to do is restrain what you want for what they want. So you can be a servant lover because Jesus came to be a servant lover for us and shed his blood on the cross for our sins. If you're a Christian, you have the capacity. It said, which is yours in Christ Jesus, having this mindset that's in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this mindset to take on the form of a servant, to be a servant. Jesus took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If you're a Christian, you have the capacity, whether you realize it or not, whether you've practiced it or not, every Christian here has the capacity to be a servant like Jesus. If you'll just do it. I'm going to close by making kind of some closing remarks and ask you some questions. Closing statements are these. If you have a child-centered home, you'll think you're serving your spouse because you're serving your family. But that's not necessarily true. By that, I'm simply saying this. If, if, you, you know, if your life is all about taking the kids to baseball, the homework, cheerleading, all that stuff, and you're thinking because you're doing that, you're serving your spouse in a way you're serving your spouse, but can I tell you something? You're not meeting all the need that your spouse has. Some people have a business-centered marriage where they think it means they're serving the spouse because they're making the money. We're putting all the hours in, and we're bringing the money home so the bills can be paid. So I'm serving my spouse. Yes, in a way that is serving your spouse, but that's not meeting all the need that your spouse has to be served. Some have a ministry-centered marriage where they're all about serving Jesus. You know what? That's great. People need to be about serving Jesus. This will come up a little bit in the next series about worship that we're going to do, but since I'm kind of there, I'm going to throw it out now. You see, we need more people to serve Jesus around here so we'll have less people that are serving Jesus burning out. Does that make sense? 
In other words, if you consider this your place of worship and, you know, this is where you come instead of just coming to soak in, you see, that's the problem in marriage relationships too. You've got one side of the party just soaking in, soaking in, soaking in, and never giving out. That's selfishness. And in a church scenario, also, if all you do is come soak in, soak in, soak in, soak in, and you never do anything and give out yourself, then you're being selfish. And people are burning out trying to do everything while we need some of you to do something. That's a free message today, okay? But see, some people throw themselves in the ministry and they're serving a lot and they're serving a lot and they're serving a lot, but it's for the purpose of ministry and not marriage. Yeah, you all serve Jesus. You all serve Jesus together. But can I tell you what? God created the family before he created the church and you need to minister to your spouse. Five questions and then John's going to come and lead us in a decision song. Here's five questions for you to think about before we have a time of decision this morning. Do you consider your spouse and his or her needs above your own? And we just saw that in the life of Jesus. We're not to think of ourselves to be more important than other people. We're to be willing to put them first. So ask yourself that. Do you consider your spouse and their needs above your own? Number two, do you do thankless menial tasks? in love to God and your spouse, the stuff that nobody's looking, the kind of jobs that nobody wants to do? Or are you doing that, you know, in a way that you're, that you're just serving your spouse? I need to repent on this one because I'm not near as good at this as Becky is. I cannot tell you how, how much of a servant I think Becky is and how far short I fall in this. She's a lot more mature in this than I am because she does a lot of menial tasks without complaining. God gave her to me because he knew I was all kinds of screwed up and I needed help, I guess. Number three, do you only receive instruction and correction because you're a sinner? You see, we're talking about selfishness and pride also. And if you're not willing to receive instruction, that's a problem because you're really prideful. If you're not willing for your spouse to give you some instruction and some help, that's a problem in the relationship because you're really prideful. Number four, do you encourage your spouse more than you criticize him or her? Think about it. The words that you say, are they critical all the time? Or do you encourage some? Number five, this is one you might miss sometimes. Are you able to serve and be served? You say, well, what's the deal with that? Because, see, some people love to serve, and they can serve, so serve for her, but they don't want anybody to serve them. And that's prideful also, because they're willing to serve, but they don't want anybody to serve them out of pride. Here's one for you ladies. You're already mad a little bit, maybe because you're not getting help, and then when the husband decides to come over and help, and you kind of say, I'll do it. (laughs) You need to be willing to let him do it. Guys, you need to be willing to let her do it. That's part of humility also, to where you will allow somebody else to serve you. Let's pray. Father, God, I want to, Lord, I just want to ask you to help us with this thing called pride and selfishness. God, help us, especially those that are couples here that are already married. Father, help us to to avoid being selfish lovers, but help us to be servant lovers. God, inside and outside of the intimate relationship that you've given us, 
Lord, help us to be servant lovers in the home and servant lovers in, in the bedroom. God, help us to meet each other's needs and not to make it all about us. Father, I, God, I, I realize that Satan got kicked out of heaven because of pride. Pride's a very, a very satanic attitude. And the devil wants to take pride in our lives and in our marriages and cause pride and selfishness to do great harm in our relationships. So God, help us this morning to deal with pride. Lord, if there's some marriages here that have been brutal because both couples have been making it all about what they want, God, help those couples right now to realize it needs to be about serving Jesus and serving each other, not themselves. Father, if, Lord, if there are people here that are just, they're dating, they're thinking about marriage, whatever, help them right now on the front side of marriage to figure it out right and and understand that it can't be about them, that they can't enter into marriage selfishly, but help them enter into marriage with a mentality of what can I do for my spouse. And Father, especially if there's someone here that does not know Christ as Savior, Father, I pray this morning that you would help them to see the need that they have. Lord, many times out of pride, we want to act like we're okay and and think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow make it to heaven on our own. God, help us to see that's not true, that that's the devil's lie. And Father, there's someone here holding on to pride, and they're unwilling to say today that they, they have fallen, that they failed, that they're a sinner, and they, they can't say themselves, and they need Jesus. God, give them victory over that pride right now, and help them to admit their need of a Savior. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're trying to, uh, trying to do a marriage without Jesus, you're trying to have a really good marriage, and you think, well, I'm trying, I mean, I'm working hard at it in the flesh and everything like that, I'm really working hard at it. But if you don't have Jesus in your heart and Jesus in your life, can I tell you what the first step is in the fixing your marriage? The first step is for you to know Jesus as your Savior. So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the very first step in your marriage being fixed is Jesus. So I invite you this morning, if you don't know Christ as Savior, please come. And I also invite you as couples, maybe right where you're standing, maybe you just need to you know, grab hold of each other and hold hands and stand right where you are and pray and say, God, help us to to be servant lovers. Maybe you need to grab your spouse by the hand and come here to the front and kneel and say, God, help us to deal with pride and selfishness in our relationship. Help us to be two people humble before you and humble with each other, serving you and serving each other. God speaks to your heart. We invite you to come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dathan Church. 
If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.